Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we thank you for this time together. We ask that you'd speak to us, Jesus. You know each of us, Jesus. You know our lives. You know what we need. Give us ears to hear and tender hearts to receive. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Thank you, Savior. Um, going to just jump right into the message. I've been uh, told sometimes I'm like a racehorse, and when it's time, I just bam, right smack dab in the middle of the message, and uh, you know, I sometimes don't build up to things. So I'm just going to start right out. Okay? How many of you want to go to hell? Raise your hand. Is there anybody here that you want to go to hell? You see, anybody who wants to go to hell is believing a fantasy, a lie. Because there's all kinds of people out there that really do want to go to hell. You have the Satanist movement that is growing, and you have all kinds of people that, if you were to talk to them, they would say, oh, I don't want to go to heaven, I'd rather go to hell. That's where all we're going to be partying. And they believe lies about it, and they believe the father of lies to believe those lies about hell, that it's going to be an okay place and, and not what it really is, not what God said that it is. And so how many of you want to go to heaven? Okay? Not all of you raised your hand. What does that mean? Does it mean some of you don't want to go to heaven? Does it mean, does it mean that some of you are just resistant? You're saying, well, I don't know if I really want to go there. And you know, I'd rather have your honesty than to be dishonest and say, well, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to live like I have to to get there. So, why do you want to go to heaven? Why? Have you ever even processed that? If you were to do a man-on-the-streets kind of interview and ask people, do you want to go to heaven? And you get all kinds of people that would say, yeah, all kinds of people. I mean, all kinds of different walks. They would say, yes, I want to go to heaven. Why? Because they think, well, I don't want to go to hell. So they're only wanting to go to heaven so they don't have to go to hell because they think hell, a bad place, a place of misery and pain and sorrow, which it is, and they think that heaven is a place of happiness, which there is truth to that, but they don't understand what heaven is. They have a fantasy about it, just like those who want to go to hell and, and joke about it, we're just going to go there to party. They have a fantasy, a lie about hell. And just like those who don't walk with Jesus that want to go to heaven, they believe a lie about heaven because they don't understand what it really is then. So do you know what heaven is? And so that man on the streets interview would go up and say, you want to go to heaven? Oh, yeah. What is it? And what answer would the majority of people give? What would they be able to say about it? They would have no substance to what they would say. It would just be a bunch of opinions and thoughts. Yeah, I'd like to go there. It seems like a nice place and, and so on. But they really don't know what heaven is. And not just that, they don't really know who is in heaven. Now, of course, they might say, oh, yeah, my mom, my dad, my grandma, whatever, my friend, my spouse. You know, you'd have a whole list of people that you think are going to be there in heaven. But they really don't understand who's in heaven. Because heaven is only heaven because God is there. And if people don't love Jesus now, why would they want to go to heaven? 
where everything in heaven is defined by Him. Everything in heaven is about God. He permeates everything. He is what defines everything. He is the source of everything. Why would somebody who didn't want to live for Him want to go to heaven then? doesn't make sense. And so a lot of people say they want to go to heaven, but they don't understand what heaven is. And because they don't like Jesus now, why would they want to go to heaven and have to be with Him forever? So here's another question. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Take that man on the streets interview once again. And you walk up to somebody, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? And how many people are going to say, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. And you ask why. He says, well, you know, God's a God of love. Right? They have no substance, no idea why people go to heaven or why people go to hell. They have no idea. They've not processed it. They've not looked at the Word of God. They've not allowed their life to be defined by it. They are just believing something that sounds nice and brings some kind of false comfort to their heart, but doesn't bring a change of life. You see, hope of heaven based on lies will in the end give nothing but lies. Do you understand? That's a serious issue. If you believe lies about God and about eternity, you're going to die in those lies. And God is not a God of lies. He's a God of absolute truth. And those who believe lies will end up in hell, not in heaven. Because they didn't know the one that defines heaven, that makes heaven heaven because He's there. And makes hell, hell, because he's tangibly not there. Imagine if you went to the ocean, and you looked out at it. And some of you may have been there, some of you may not have been there, so you don't understand the dynamic of it. When you look out and you see nothing but blue, you see nothing and it just falls off. You see the curvature of the, of the earth that's there, and there's nothing on the other side that you can see. You cannot see England. You can't see Europe. And you go and you dip your hand in the water, and you take one little drop, and you put it into a bowl. One drop. That one drop represents your life on earth. Whether it's five years, whether it's a hundred years, it's irrelevant. It's just this drop. And all the oceans and all the water on this planet represents the vastness of eternity. And what do people do? They squander their eternity, one drop of existence. They squander that and reject the entirety of the wonder of eternity of what God gives so that they can be in the practice of sin, so they can live their own life and do what they want to do and supposedly have a good time in it. But you know, I've been there. And the world doesn't offer a good time. It gives all kinds of promises that it cannot ever fulfill. All kinds of promises of happiness and joy and fulfillment and peace. And one thing after another you go to and you get that thrill in the beginning. It's there in the beginning. But after every sin is going to come the serpent's bite and that poison is going to go right into your very soul. And it's going to corrupt you. It's all that sin can do. It's all that Eva can do is bring death and sorrow and pain and misery. 
So how much do you want to go to heaven? For those of you who raised your hand and said you want to go to heaven, how much do you really want to go to heaven? Now that's an important question. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to understand what's being said here. You've got to comprehend this. How much do you want to go to heaven? Is that what is defining your life? Is that what's defining how you live? How you act? How you work? What you do with money? What you do with time? What you do with your phones? What you do with every aspect of you? How much do you really want to go to heaven? If it is, is it merely a hope about when you die that you're going to go to a nice place? But it's really not important to you now. Your importance in this life is based upon this life and what this life can give you. That's what you look to. That's what you want. And eternity has virtually no thought, nothing in, in what you do on a daily basis. Or is it so important to you that it defines how you live? Because that's what it's supposed to be. If this life is but that drop of water, and God is offering us this unbelievable, phenomenal ocean of eternity in His presence, then why would I squander all the eternity, all the ocean of the wonder of His presence for one drop of misery in this life because sin does not give what it promises like I just said? Why would I squander all the goodness and kindness and love of God for that which is going to be misery, pain, and suffering? Why would I do that? He says, you won't get to heaven by time and chance. You won't get there by accident. You won't fall into heaven. You understand? It's not just going to happen because you're a human being doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Because God is loving does not mean you're going to heaven. Because God is loving, He made the way to heaven. He made heaven obtainable, but He made it obtainable through a particular way that He has said, this is the way, walk in it. And if we don't walk in that way, we don't get to heaven. That's how serious it is. But how many people think about it? How many people process it? Because if you want to get to heaven, it must be a purposeful act of your life. It must be the ultimate goal of your life. It must be what you do on purpose when you wake up and when you go to bed at night and everything in between. Because if you don't, you don't know where the compromise, where the sin is going to take you then. You don't know what it's going to produce. And you know, I am so often disturbed at how I see people that call themselves Christians so apathetic about God and about eternity because they really don't take it to heart. They don't understand what's at stake. And that's serious. And that's serious. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. A portion of this thought was in one of the songs we sang, the second song we sang. Josh has no idea what I was preaching. My wife doesn't know what I'm preaching. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. is what we're going to concentrate on. I'm just going to build upon this thought. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, as if you're a true follower of Jesus, you should be saying amen to this. You should be agreeing with it. 
But is it something that you are really understanding, that you're comprehending what this really means, what Paul is saying here? And so we're going to get into this whole idea, and we're going to begin with the idea of what does it mean to live for Christ? Because if we're going to make heaven our home, we have to live for Christ. If you don't live for Christ, you're not going to make heaven your home. That's an absolute. That's an absolute. There's no, there's no exceptions to that. You understand? You do not have any special rights to practice sin and go to heaven. But that's what the devil wants us to think, that we can practice sin, that it's not that big a deal. Well, God understands my, my situation, and we try to somehow justify the practice of sin in our life. We can even do it by going and saying, well, God is a loving God, and He's merciful. And we take the mercy and the love of God, and we pervert it and twist it and make it into something that is totally different from what it is, so that we can continue in our sin and think that we're still going to go to heaven. But what is going to happen when you stand before Him? Him. What will happen when he says, why should I let you in my heaven? What will you say? Well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm okay. What are you going to say when you stand before him and you have to give an account? Because if you're not ready for that, the truth is going to come out. And if you're not ready for it, then what are you going to, what are you going to do? How are you going to deal with it? So what does it mean to live for Christ? Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is an absolute. This is non-negotiable. You cannot go and say, well, I'm going to rewrite this and make it sound a little bit different so that I can do my little thing and live my life the way that I want and everything's going to be okay. Because, well, God, like I said, we, He's a loving God, but we've twisted what it means for Him to be loving. So if you live according to sinful nature, you are going to die. What is the die there? It's not talking about physical death, because we are all going to face that. It's talking about spiritual death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's why you go to the book of Revelation, what does it say? That the lake of fire is the second death. It's this final death forever for those who do not know Christ and those who have refused to walk with Him. Those who are defiant of His rule. Those who are religious but had no relationship with Him because they didn't want to come under His rule. But if I, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds, the sins of my body, the promise is I will live. So what is the dying here? If I put to death the misdeeds, the sin, if I crucify them, if I die to them rather than give over to them. Now, we can twist the very concept of what mercy is. I mean, we can be people that talk about mercy and God is merciful and then twist in our very minds the idea of mercy because now we've made mercy a license to continue sinning. God's merciful. He understands. I'm saved by grace, not by works. And now we're using grace as a means to justify the worldliness, the compromise, the sin in our life, rather than understanding that sin is absolutely and utterly hostile to God. That it is like a plague. Just like what, what's gone on time and again on our planet, a plague comes and wipes out thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And so what has to happen, somehow those germs have to be dealt with. Those germs must be dealt with or the plague is going to continue going on. Sin is a plague to God's creation and God will deal with it because He loves His creation. 
He will heal His creation by removing what destroys. And so if you don't want to live for Christ, then you really don't want to go to heaven. And you will do better to be ruthlessly honest and say, you know, I really don't want to go to heaven. At least you're telling yourself the truth. And there's hope in saying that because you might be convinced then of the reality of the goodness of God and what He wants to do for your life. But if you are believing a lie, lies are so utterly deceptive, they keep people in those lies and they perpetuate lies again and again because they're not walking in the truth and they don't want the truth to expose what's inside of them. So to live for Christ, you must have a better love than the love of self. Because why should I put to death my sin? Why should I die to the things I've clung to, the things that I love in my fleshly desires? Why should I die to them? Why should I crucify and cut them off? Because I found a better love. I found a love that is good, that is pure, that is wonderful, that's holy. I found a love that is all-consuming, a love that grabs hold of you and engulfs you in the wonder and the beauty of it. And this love, this God of love, of true love, invites me into a heaven where He dwells and He loves His people in ways we can't even comprehend now. And why would I forfeit that for one drop of life of sin and rebellion to do my own thing? Or to believe lies about myself and what I do are lies about God that sin is not exceedingly wicked and exceedingly evil. So I must have a better love. If I don't have a better love, I'm playing Russian roulette, hoping that maybe when I die, I might get right. And what a dangerous game to play. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful portion of verse. I use it a lot in preaching because it's just so wonderful of this life that we're to live. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. And understand that being raised with Christ means that you die. You don't get raised unless you die. And so he's saying, since you've been raised with Christ, since you have died to your sin, and now you are being raised in this wonderful life in Christ that is for us now in this world and for us forever and ever in eternity, beyond anything we could even fathom now. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And you know, it comes very, very natural to think and love worldly things. Very easy to dwell upon me, right? You have a very easy time dwelling upon you. You know what you like to talk about? Most people I will say this. What they like to talk about most? Themselves. I mean, you sit down and you start asking questions about a person and they'll go on hour after hour after hour. Never even think of communicating with you and asking anything about you. But if you ask them about that, man, they're just, oh, they'll talk about themselves. doesn't matter how miserable their life is or how horrible it is. They will talk about themselves. Why? Because they are the God of their life. That is what consumes them. That's what consumes their thoughts, consumes their ambitions, consumes their dreams. It's me, my happiness, my wants, my ambitions. But here we're told that if we've been raised with Christ, we should have something very different. That it's no longer about me, no longer about consumed about my pains, my hurts, my wants, my, des- my desires, all the things that's gone on bad in this world or whatever. But that my thoughts now are being focused on a God 
of utter and absolute perfection and beauty. That He's drawing me to Himself and I'm seeing something I could never see in my sin. I'm seeing how excellent He is. How wonderful He is. How kind He is. How He has bought me with His own blood and drawn me into Himself that I might know the depths and heights and riches of that love. I must have a better love or I will not forsake my sin. I will not become a person that is really living for eternity. To live for Christ, you must die to self. It's not an option. It's not an option. God has not given you any option. If you are going to go to heaven, you cannot practice sin. You practice sin, you are not going to go to heaven. That's it. You can't practice any sin. You cannot be in the practice sin because sin separates you from God. You practice sin, you are separating yourself from God. And if you believe a lie that your sin is not that big a deal, then that lie is going to separate you from God because you don't understand what your sin really is. You are believing lies, practicing deception, and as a result, you are rushing to a judgment that you right now are lying to yourself you're not going to face. And so what does Paul tell us to do? Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, here he's beginning to tell us exactly what the problem is. That if we practice sin, the wrath of God is going to come against those who practice sin. And you know what? The wrath of God will come against all those people who call themselves Christians that practice sin. And all those people who don't call themselves Christians that practice sin. But the wonder of the love of God is that He made a way of escape so that we do not have to continue in the practice of sin. That there is a way to overcome. That there is victory. That God is offering us the power to overcome the things that we could not overcome by ourselves. That there is an ability to be victorious. There's an ability to please God. That's what he wants. You understand he's not up there trying to be some mean God and just wanting to rain fire and brimstone on us. He is this loving God that wants us to know the depths and heights and riches of his love, that's wanting to engulf us and wrap his arms around us, that we would know his love and enjoy his love and be able to enjoy that love forever and ever and ever. He's inviting us to that. He is warning us about the nature of sin so that we don't become slaves of sin. That's what Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. says, For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. When I was in the drug culture, guess what mastered me? My drug addiction, my drinking, the whole party life, everything I lived for, it mastered me. I was not the master of it. It defined me. You wake up in the morning. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to get high. What do you want to do the rest of the day? You want to get high. What do you want to do at night? You want to get high. Why? Because you're driven by it. You're consumed with it. It has mastered you. You are not master of it. You have never, ever, nobody has ever been master of sin. Sin always masters the one who sins. Always. Every time. Without fail. That's how serious he is. Why does he warn us of such things? Because he wants us in heaven. He created this place that he does not need for himself. You understand? God does not need heaven. God is outside of his creation, spiritual or material. 
He created earth for us. He created heaven for the righteous. That is a place that we can be in. And what is He going to do? He is going to be there so we can enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. Because this God is so good, kind, loving, and benevolent that He's made a way for that loving benevolence to be showered upon us forever. To live for Christ, you must... Here's the clincher. You must have a new life in Christ. If you are not walking holy before God, if you are not walking in righteousness, it's because you are not in the new life in Christ. You understand, the Christian life cannot be lived by the natural man, by the natural woman. It can only be lived through the power of God, through a transformed life. So if you want to overcome sin, the only way you can overcome sin is you have to be truly born again. Not churchy born again that just prays a little prayer and you say the same, but truly born again, where you are transformed by the power of God. So Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10, do not lie to each other. I'll read the rest in a moment, but that's serious. You know what I've done? The discipleship that I have... Before we started it, I went to all the guys. This was to all of them. I said, here's one of, the, one of the principles of discipleship. You lie, you're out of the discipleship. Because people that lie cannot be discipled because they're living lies. There is no discipleship with liars. Liars have to stop lying or they cannot be discipled. They have to lay outside all the lies, all the deception, all the deceit, everything, or they cannot become a disciple of Christ, or they cannot be discipled by Christ. That's how serious it is. So he says, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So you put on the new man, this new life in Christ, by what? Putting off this old life. This old practice, this old sin that we've lived and practiced and, and, and so immersed in, we put it off. We do what Jesus said that said it a little more graphic, a little more point blank. He says, does your hand offend you? Cut it off. Does your eye offend you? Pluck it out. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about the absolute holy aggression that's to rise up in a person and that says, I will no longer continue in the practice of sin. I will no longer continue in that. I will no longer be mastered by my lust, by my pride, by my self-will. I will no longer be mastered by it. I will now become the master over to the grace of God that it has no more control or say over me. That's what the Lord wants to do in our lives. That's what He wants to do is make us victorious over sin that we were once enslaved to, controlled by, manipulated by, driven by, that He wants to give us freedom from. And that we come to the place to understand what it is to serve a good, true, loving, kind, and generous God. So, Philippians 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it mean, the idea to die is gain? You remove this from the Christian faith, from the biblical faith, and you have a very distorted idea. A very distorted idea. It's the idea that that, well, you know, we're okay, it's not that big a deal, and, you know, I, I don't really have to walk with, with God, it's alright, you know, He's a loving God. But uh, the die here does not refer to physical death. The die here in the Greek actually reads, to have died. 
So what he's talking about, for me to live as Christ and to have died is gain. It's not the process of dying physically that can be painful, can be difficult, depending on the way that you die. But it's what's after. To have died in Christ will mean I have resurrection life forever and ever and ever with Him. That I will be with Him. To have died because I lived for Christ will give me an eternity that is blessed beyond anything I can imagine. But if you want that life in Christ, you've got to die to self. It's not an option. You've got to die to the very sins that you have loved, that you clung to. And you know what's so crazy? When you were in the world and your sin was so painful, and most of you are knowing what I'm talking about, especially if you're in the drug culture or some sexual or whatever, you understand the painful agony of sin when it gets a hold of you, but yet now you have time away from that particular sin, and what happens? Lies come to you and tries to tell you how wonderful it really was. It was never wonderful. It will never be wonderful. It will never be wonderful again. It will always be what it has always been. Sin will always produce sorrow and separation. And if we begin to listen to the devil, it's going to open up the door for you to go right back into it because you're going to say, this is what I need. This is okay. Just a little fling. Just a little this. Whatever. I cannot tell you how much this knowledge is coming out more and more and more. People go into a drug culture. Heroin is being laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl is a cheap street drug. Heroin is an expensive street drug. They go into a program to get off of drugs. They're lacing pot with fentanyl. They're lacing everything with it because it's so cheap to produce and it's killing person after person after person. They go into a rehab and they say, one last fling. And they go out and they're dead that night. I can't tell you how often this is happening. It's happening more and more and more because they try to get off of it and now their body cannot handle and they're taking what they did before and it kills them. Just one last fling, that's all it is. One last fling, one last time. Won't it be fun? And then they wake up in hell. It's serious. We have to, if we don't have eternity stamped on our hearts, we're going to live for the temporal. That's why this is so important. We must have eternity stamped in our hearts. We must have this thing that is so consuming in us that I want to be with Him. I want to be with Him forever. And it is gain for me the day I breathe my last to be with Him forever because I will never again have to deal with the ugly me. Never again have to deal with my sinful nature. Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Paul brought out the reality of the struggle. And uh, he said, I'm torn between the two, which is the idea of living in this life and going home to be with Jesus. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Here's the struggle. And you know, I want to be really honest with you. Every one of you believers... This struggle should be the reality of your life right this moment. And if it's not, you are not understanding Christ and eternity rightly. You have something very twisted in your heart. 
is if you love Jesus, you would say, God, I want to be home. I can't wait to be home. But I know right now it's needful for me to be here. I have a, a, a wife, a husband. I have children. I have friends. I have a, a people I'm trying to reach. There's a reason for me to be here. But Lord, if you take me now, I will be so glad. Is there that ache in you? That ache to be with Him? Because if it's not, you don't know Him then, or know Him very well. Is it going to be this tension? Paul brings out that tension. There's a real tension there. I have this, this tension inside of me. I want to be with Jesus, but I know I need to be with you. This should be the case with parents. They look at their little children. I love my babies. I want to be with them. But Jesus, I want to be with you. If it's time for me to go home, you'll take care of my babies. You're the Savior. I'm not. It should be the aching in the hearts. And you know, this is a hard one for mothers. This is very, very hard for mothers, more than for fathers. Because mothers have this, this, this bonding with a child that fathers don't have in the same way. And can we say that? Can a mother say that? I'd rather be with you, Jesus. I'd rather be with you. But I know it's needful for me to be here with my babies right now. You see, we need eternity stamped upon our minds, stamped upon our hearts. And we need to be a people that refuse to be earthbound, stuck to this planet. Because if you are earthbound when you breathe your last, being earthbound is just going to suck you right down into hell itself. But if my life is being lived for a whole different thing, And when I breathe my last, my body may be put in the ground. But I'm with Jesus. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. An Old Testament prophecy. It's interesting, you know, Jesus fulfilled over... 350 Old Testament prophecies with His first coming. Over 350 of them. You get in the law of probability and it is absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, absolutely impossible. And here's one that He had no personal say over that He would be crucified between two criminals. The crowd is mocking Jesus. The criminals are mocking Jesus. But something happens along the way. While these two men are dying next to the Savior, and they're hearing some of the sayings of Christ, there are seven last things that Jesus spoke from the cross, and they hear some of them, such as, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And somehow something pierced one of those, those criminals' hearts, and a change happened to him. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. Now that's 
That's a wonderful thing that he was saved. It's a terrifying thing to wait till that last moment. Because you don't know if you'll have that last moment. To be saved by the skin of your teeth is to be barely saved, to barely get in. But yet there was the wonder of the mercy of God. You don't know if you have that chance. You don't know if you have that opportunity. Another day, another week, another year, another 20 years, or 30 years. You don't know how long you have. And to gamble with your eternal soul is the most foolish thing you could do to think, well, I have time. I can continue in my sin. I can continue to party. I can live the way I want and it'll all be okay. Jesus is talking with His disciples. And in John chapter 14, verses 1-3, through 3, He gives a, just a beautiful, beautiful statement. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. Some translations say mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. What a phenomenal promise. What a phenomenal promise. I am going to go back with my Father. He didn't tell them at that moment. He had been teaching them, and so they weren't understanding, but I'm going to go back to my Father through the cross, okay? I'm going to go back to my Father. For what purpose? So that I can bring you with me. Because I want you. I'm preparing the way. I'm, I'm taking upon myself the sins of the world. I'm taking upon myself the, the, the judgment and the curse of it all. I'm doing it so that you do not have to face it. I'm doing it so you don't have to face my wrath, but that you can know my tender mercy, that you can know my kindness, so that you can be with me where I am forever. Church, there's something so serious with this that we have to understand, though. The Lord wrote seven letters to seven churches in the church of Ephesus, which is the first letter that was sent out, or the first one written down. He goes to the church of Ephesus and he tells them they're doing a wonderful job. All this stuff is going on. And then he says this little thing, yet I hold this against you. So if Jesus wrote you a letter, what would that letter be? Would he say some nice things? Oh, you're doing a good job here. You're doing a good job there. But would he then say, yet I hold this against you? That's a serious one, isn't it? But this is a loving letter. Jesus didn't write this letter to the church and the letters to the other churches because he was mean. He did it because he was loving. He was kind. He was wanting them. You understand that whole thing? He says, where I am, I want you to be. I want you with me. But here's this thing in your life. There's this thing that's going to keep you from me if you don't deal with it. And what is the exact thing that he's saying that's going to be the problem? He says, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You have forsaken your first love. That word forsaken 
You know what that word means in the Greek? It's a word that's used for divorce. It does not mean, as so many preachers loosely say, that you lost your first love. There is nothing criminal. There's nothing sinful about losing something. You lose your keys, you're not in trouble, okay? You may have a hard time getting your house or in your car, but, you know, it's not going to cost you your eternity. But to forsake your first love means that you are playing the prostitute. Means you are having these other lovers. You are an adulterer, an adulteress, going after other loves. And he says, if you don't deal with this, if you don't take care of this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what that means? I'm going to take away your salvation. You cannot walk with me in your sin. You cannot be mine in the practice of sin. You have done some good things. That's okay. That's wonderful you've done those things. But those good things are not going to outweigh the evil that you have done. It's not going to do away with the sin that you have done. The only thing that can do away with the sin that we have done is the blood of Christ that comes as cleansing through repentance. And repentance is only repentance when it's a true turning from our sin and not a continually going back to our sin. There is no forgiveness for those who practice sin. And you want to be really scared about that idea right there? I forget where it is in the book of Hebrews, but go to the book of Hebrews and read where he says that there is no forgiveness for those who go back. Not that God won't forgive the backslider, but when the backslider goes back, how many are ever going to return? Because sin can take you so far from Him, harden your heart more than you've ever known, and if you don't understand its reality, you play with sin, you play with little sin, those little sins are going to grow up to become bigger and bigger, harden your heart more and more and more, and move you away from Jesus so that you will not be with Him forever. That's what He's want. That's what He's laboring for in your life. That you could be with Him forever. You see, we need to see God rightly. And so much of our problem is that we don't see Him rightly. That we have this twisted view, this twisted understanding of who He is. He's all messed up in our minds. And so we desperately need to see God correctly. But how are we going to see God correctly unless we purposely begin to dismantle our opinions about Him? Your opinions are utterly worthless. You can say, this is what I think. What does it matter? When you get to heaven, you stand before him and he says, why should I let you in, in my heaven? He says, well, this is what I think. You think he's going to open the doors wide open for you because you had your own opinions about him and about God and about salvation? It's about truth. It's about knowing a God of truth that reveals truth to us that for all those who want to know the truth, they can know the truth because it's available to all of us. It's available to all of us. It's available to anybody that wants to know. It's just, it's just whether we really want to know. So according to the understanding we have of God will be the life that we live. So you look at it. You look at somebody that's in the practice of sin. You go right there. Their idea of God is, is severely perverted. They do not think right about Him so they can allow sin in their life. If, if they don't even have any knowledge of God, they are living the life that they did because that's all the knowledge they got because the world has taught them to practice sin. That's what the world's all about. That's what's normal. And then all of a sudden the truth of the Gospel comes breaking in and starts showing them saying, there is a different way. There's a better way. There's a way of life that will deliver you from the pain of your sin and the sorrow and the madness. There's a way of deliverance. There's a way of salvation. But you see, this God offers salvation on His terms, not your terms. 
So what does your life say about your knowledge of God? Does your life say you know Him well? Does it? Because your life is a book. It is telling a story. What is the story of your life? And for us, it should be a very ugly story in the beginning. That as we go along this story, that somewhere there is this radical revolution that changes us, and the story changes so radically that we go from darkness into life, into a life of sin and rebellion, into a life of holiness and pursuit of God. And from that moment on, our lives have become more and more and more and more of an expression of that transformed life. If it's not, what's wrong with your concept of God? What's wrong with your concept of Christianity? Because you have then believed lies that allows you to be in the practice of sin without thinking or understanding what it really is. You have somehow fashioned God into your own image rather than looking at Him as what and who He truly is. Now, would you want to go to heaven with the God you've fashioned in your own mind? Think about that. So the God that you think you believe in, do you want to be with Him forever and ever and ever? Now, if you've made Him in your mind a tyrant, a mean God, a God that can never be pleased and satisfied, do you want to be with that kind of God forever? A God that could be like what your father was, that can never be pleased, never be happy, always looking up, always condemning, always belittling, and forever and ever be in the madness of such a thing? Because that's not who God really is, but yet many people have that concept of Him. Or how about the aspect, would you want to be in heaven with a God that is a wimp, that's a weakling, that has no spine, that has no strength, that has no power? Or would you want to go to heaven to a God that is disinterested or doesn't care about you? And so you go to heaven, you go, where's God? Oh, I guess he's on another vacation. I don't, we don't know where he is. He doesn't care about his creation. However you think of God, you have to understand, is that what you want to be with forever? Because if you're believing a lie about Him, more than likely you're not going to make it. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So what do we do? We look at Jesus. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Look at Him. Study Him. Know Him. Understand Him. We see Jesus. And what do we see? We see a love so spectacular, so radical that our minds can't even understand it, that He came down, God took upon flesh and blood so He could die upon the cross, so He could take our sins upon His shoulders, so that He could take the judgment we deserve. That's the kind of love that He's calling us into. That's the kind of love that He's calling us to live out in our own lives. But we can't live it out until we begin to actually know that love that surpasses human understanding. That we begin to taste of that love and want to walk in that love. And the more we start walking in the love and knowing the love of God, the more the love of God will begin to define our life and define everything about us. Psalms 96, verse 9 says, Oh, worship the Lord. 
in the beauty or splendor of His holiness, tremble before Him all the earth. I'm glad that God is not a little God. I'm glad He's not a wimp. And I'm glad He's not a tyrant. Because an almighty God that was a tyrant would be a tyrant like you and I can't imagine. But He has revealed Himself as good, loving, compassionate, tender, and desirous of us. Wanting us. Calling us to Himself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you have the story of King Jehoshaphat, which was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was a godly king. And all of a sudden, these three nations come against him. The Moabites, the Ammonites, with some of the Menuhites. They came to make war on Jehoshaphat. For what reason? He provoked nothing. It was just the pride, the arrogance, the greed, wanting to take the land, and, and so on. And so they go and they start arraying themselves against Judah. And so Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, he begins to seek the face of God. He calls the people to pray and fast, and he prays and fasts, and they begin to seek the Lord on what to do. And, and then the Lord spoke to a, a legitimate prophet that gave him a word that God would fight this battle for you. And so in verse 21 of chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, it says, After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. Or as the New King James Version says, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. Both translations are correct according to the Greek. But just think of this. You have these worshipers going before the army, and what are they singing? They're not singing some war song. They're adoring God. You are good. Your love endures forever. Your mercy endures forever. That's what they're worshiping again and again. And what does God do? I'm not going to go through the whole story. But He gives them victory over this enemy that came against them, totally defeated, and they never even lifted a sword. But God gave victory because the people began to understand who this God is. You see, God didn't bring those armies against them. That was man's doing. But God would intervene for the people of God when those type of things happened. And what did they do? They worshipped God. They understood His love. They understood His mercy. They adored Him. Because they began to really understand Him. One of my favorite portions of Scripture is in the book of Job. Job was a righteous man. And we are told that at the beginning of Job, there was no one like him on the face of the earth. No one like him. A man unique in his passion for God, in his pursuit of God. But guess what? His passion for God aroused a passion of hell. A hatred to want to bring ruin to that man. There's mysteries here I can't even explain. I'm not even going to pretend to try and explain them. But God allowed Satan to bring ruin to that man. Family members died in a day. All these family members died. His wealth was taken from him in a moment. And it says he never even cursed God. He adored. He worshipped. Just like 
The people did in the days of Jehoshaphat. They worshipped. They adored. Why? Because they understood who God was. Job understood, at least to a certain extent, about God. Now, when you look at the book, yes, there was a problem with Job. He grew self-righteous, and his self-righteousness, he, he began to condemn God instead of understanding what was really going on. And so, yes, the, that, that human uh, aspect of a man ignorant of God and then the sin that came out of that is there. But God was merciful and brought repentance to Job and, and so on. But here he is then, not just having everything taken from him, then his body is... is is smote with sore boils, whatever exactly that was. We're just told how miserable it was that he took a broken pot and he's taking it and he's scraping his, his skin because of the pain and the itch and everything. It just had to be this horrifying thing and a mess of ooze all over him. Then he's just in agony. Agony in the grief of everything he's lost. Agony in his physical body. And yet he comes to the point to say this in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. That in the end, He will stand upon the earth after my skin has been destroyed. Yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That should be the heart of every follower of Jesus. How my heart yearns within me. I long for the day where I will see you face to face. I long for the day when this flesh of mine will be decaying in a, in a grave, but I will be given a new body and I will see you face to face. I long for that day. And those that long for that day live like they're longing for that day. Everything then is defined by that longing desire. Everything. Sin becomes reprehensible to them in their life. They don't want to open the door to it because their eyes are fixed on this Savior, this beautiful, wonderful Savior that is calling us to Himself, that's preparing us, giving us the help we need in every way if we will but look to Him. When we are defeated, it is because we are defeated, because we choose to be defeated, because we have chosen to love our sin instead of looking to God, fixing our eyes upon Him. Because there's absolute victory in Christ for any that want that victory. Defeat is of our own making. It is of our own choice. It's that we choose to reject the truth and to believe lies. But when we walk with Jesus, the more we walk with Him, the sweeter He becomes. Forty-eight years I have walked with Jesus. And I would not trade one day. I would not go back to sin, the life I lived for anything, the misery, the sorrow, and now it would be a hundred, a million times worse because I know the wonder of His great love. It takes time to develop that kind of life where your heart is so aching for Him. I'm not going to say it happens in a moment, but it begins. It has a start where you begin to taste that He is good, where you begin to know this God in a way that your heart is being captured by Him. He will capture any heart that wants to be captured, but if you don't want your heart captured, it won't be captured. He knows those who want Him, and He knows those who don't. And those who want Him, He will come to, and He will make sure that you will understand if you want. But are you willing to seek Him? Is gain in dying and dying to your to, to your own life and to our, to your life in this world, is it really gain to you to go to be with Jesus? Is it where your heart is yearning? 
Because I guarantee you, the man or the woman that has that desire, everything changes then. Everything changes. I want to close with one final verse. Psalms 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in Him. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you're not walking with Him, right now, you are like a blind person that was born blind. And imagine that you sit down to this person that was born blind and you try to describe the sky to them. The color blue. How do you describe blue? How do you make blue real to a person who has never, ever seen blue? You use words that are only going to be words to explain what is, can only be understand, understood with eyes. But because you're blind, you can't see. Right now, you are blind. If you are not a true follower of Jesus, you are blind in your sin. And all you have is the testimony of the Word of God and the testimony of His people that are walking with Him. And they are telling you that this Jesus is wonderful, glorious, beautiful, worth serving That He's worth giving everything up. If you will die to your sin, God is going to offer you joy and peace in your life. And you have not tasted of that because you've not allowed that yet in your life. But if you will believe the testimony of the Word of God and the testimony of His people, as a blind person, you can stumble forward to an altar to the foot of the cross where sight will come to you. And you'll begin to see And you'll see like you never saw before. You will see this Jesus you heard about. You'll see this Jesus that was only told about you. And you'll see Him. See Him for the first time. There's this woman. She's a wild woman. Missionary in Mozambique. I mean, she's a wild woman. And uh, she's in an ox-drawn cart with a bunch of people there. And she's sitting with this elderly woman in her arms that's blind. And she just, with a sweet little prayer, oh Jesus, it would be so wonderful if this one could but see again. And all of a sudden, that woman screamed. She'd never seen a white person before. Shock! That's what it is. You have been all your life in sin. All your life in rebellion. You're hearing about the beauty of Christ. You're hearing about the wonder of salvation. It's there before you. You have never really seen it for yourself. You've just heard. You've just heard. But faith is now reaching out. And you go to grab hold of it. And you open your eyes and the first thing you see is Him. You see Him. You see Him who purchased you with His own blood. You see this God that does not have these eyes of hatred, these eyes of anger and vengeance. You see eyes of compassion that has been aching for you for so long. Wanting you to come home for so long. And you have fought and resisted. And finally you said yes. And the eyes and the face and the smile. Because it's His joy when a sinner comes home. It's what we're told in the Gospels. 
that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes home, when one sinner runs home to Jesus. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, you know every single person here. You know those, those who are followers, those who can understand what that yearning desire is all about, what you spoke about in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. They know what it is. They have this aching, this yearning desire to be with you. It consumes everything else. It defines their life. Lord, there are some believers here. I don't know if all of them are there. God, I pray that they all would be. I pray that it becomes the passion of their life to get to that place where they are consumed with this desire of You. And as a result, their life is defined by that thirsting, by that hungering for You. Lord, for anybody here that's not a true follower of Jesus, Lord, they've never seen Your face. They've never seen Your face. They've never seen how wonderful and beautiful and loving You are. They've never understood. They've had all these distorted ideas that came from a host of place and their own opinions and their own hurts in life that they've developed something of a distorted image of You. They've never seen the real Jesus. They've never looked upon a God that is longing to save them and rescue them from their self-destruction. God, I'm asking for any that are here that don't know You that they would want to run to You this morning, O oh God. That they would want to run home, O oh God. To see You, Jesus. To see You. To see beauty beyond anything we can imagine. To see You, Jesus. And Lord, for those that are backsliders here, God, they once have seen You, but now they're they're going back to the world, going back to sin has obscured your beautiful face and it's all become distorted and twisted in their minds. God, they need to run once again to the foot of the cross and have a fresh look at you. That their sin would begin to fall off. That it begin to fall away because their heart would be, begin to cry out to begin to pan for you. Lord, I'm asking for changed lives this morning in your precious name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I guess the very first thing that you have to look at here is if you are a, a true follower of Jesus or not. If you cannot come to the point to really understand that you are separated from God because of your sin, then you cannot come to salvation because you have not yet seen the need. You must see the reality. Your sin is absolutely, utterly, totally, completely evil. You're not a good person that makes a couple of problems or has a few issues in your life. You are a thoroughly bad person. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. But the remedy is being offered to you. A God of mercy is calling you. He's giving you a way of escape from your life of sin. He's inviting you to run home to Him and to, God, to gain salvation through the forgiveness of sin. Once you understand the reality that you are a sinner and that your sin is absolutely ugly and hideous to God, 
then you must understand that Christ is the only remedy. There is no other answer for your sin. There is no other remedy. There is no other religion. There's no other God. There's no other way. Good works will not balance out the bad works that you have done because it is not a problem of what you have done itself, but of who you have been. God is wanting to transform you from the inside out. And then you know the third thing here is you have to be willing to run home to Jesus. I'm going to open this altar up in just a moment. And if you're not a Christian, you need to run home to Jesus this morning. You need to be willing to lay aside your fear, your pride, all the baggage. It's irrelevant what people think. Would you let anybody keep you out of heaven? Would you let a friend, a spouse, a child, would you let them keep you out of heaven? Will you let them decide whether you're going to go to heaven or hell? Or will you end up saying, it doesn't matter. I must, I must see Jesus. I must meet Jesus. I must go home. It's irrelevant what anybody else thinks. Do you have the courage to lay aside your pride and your fear to run to Him? And to know His forgiveness this morning, He's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you to run to Him. Would everybody please stand?